Thanks for coming. Uh, I'm Jim. Uh, I think most of you know me. Uh, I'm the head of Comparative Media Studies, uh, and uh, I'm here to introduce Mary Gray, uh, who's a senior Hi. researcher at Microsoft Research New England and also an associate professor of communication and culture at Indiana University. Uh, this evening, she'll walk us through the idea of big data in social inquiry. She argues for attending to different dimensions rather than scales of it. She's moving it from the snapshot of quantitative work to the time-lapse photography of ethnography. Her research includes ethnographically informed social media research, compliance, cyber infrastructures in universities, and their impact on emerging media research online labor, and the importance of location and place in the context of mobile technologies. Her book, titled Out in the Country, Youth, Media, and Queer Visibility in Rural America, examined how youth in rural parts of the U.S. fashion queer senses of gender and sexual identity and the role that media, particularly Internet access, played in their lives and political work. Mary? Thanks, Jim. Hey, everybody. Um, this is a thought piece for me, so I'm, I'm really excited this is being recorded because I hope I can grab the transcript from the recording and fill in the paper that I'm working on. So this is, this is a work in progress, um, and I'm going to use, um, I'm going to use a, a couple of different cases to think through uh, concept metaphors for big data to kind of push against how we currently think about big data. Um, so just to give you a sense of the flow of, of the talk, I, I want to review a few of the provocations that are out there that probably many of you are, are familiar with, or, or hopefully many of you are familiar with, about the meaning and role of big data. Uh, as I said, I want to outline um, the value of an ethnographic crit critique, mostly because I do ethnographic work, so it seems like a, a way of bringing a particular toolkit to the conversation that otherwise hasn't been in the mix. Um, to use it as a critique of the way we're talking about big data. And, and when I'm using we, I, I mean it more in public discourse. I, I think there are plenty of people, who, and, and actually I see a few of you in the room, who are being far more critical um, and judicious, judicious about how you're, you're using big data. But I want to run through a couple of cases. One, one is a historical case that most people outside of anthropology, um, the discipline I, I came out of, um, are, are not that familiar with. So I want to use that as, as a, a historical um, think piece. And then the second, the second case is really to think about some of the work that I've done. I've just been reflecting on my own projects and what it is I think uh, ethnographic work and particularly critical um, queer studies brings to the table. And then lastly, in many ways, I'm proposing a celebration of what mathematicians call the curse of dimensionality. Um, I've been hanging out quite a bit with mathematicians these days, so I feel like I'm um, surface gleaning some, some really nice metaphors from them. So if there are any mathematicians or economists in the room, I, I apologize in advance for abusing uh, your, your terminology. But I, I want to use the notion of a, of a um, blessing of dimensionality uh, as a way of thinking about um, uh, big data. Um, let's see here. So a few and I'm going to be a little bit behind in my slides, a few um, key terms before I go too much further. The first one is what I mean by critical. Uh, I'm using it very specifically um, here. So to think about theories as transformative, um, to see how um, knowledge, production, epistemologies, 
are about interpretation um, uh, above all else. So this is rooted in, in Marxist critiques of uh, to think about philosophy as something that, that should do something. Um, and Horkheimer is probably um, one of the best touchstones for, for thinking about this approach. Um, when I'm talking about ethnography, I, I want to be precise here as well, because in some cases, uh, folks tend to think about ethnographic work as fact-finding um, or strictly descriptive. And um, a more critical turn in anthropology and in quali- qualitative sociology and in other fields that use the toolkit of ethnography, many of us would argue that ethnography is a theory-building exercise, uh, that it's not meant to be um, a- about finding what's really going on, but rather um, a-, a heuristic, a, human- um, a way of upending uh, what we take for granted. Um, and, and particularly to be able to think about what it is that uh, might be produced as obscured or invisible in the first place, what it is that's normative and how that uh, comes through um, through a very productive process. And then this last key term that seems really critical to, to iron out is what do I mean by big data? Um, you may have seen the, actually now it's the title of a great book um, or a collection by um, Lisa Gittleman, but that it's an oxymoron to think um, that data is ever anything raw. Uh, Bowker, uh, Jeff Bowker um, made that uh, statement, and it was quoted by Boyd and Crawford in 2011, and then uh, Lisa Gittleman has picked it up. Um, and that is to say that there's nothing obvious um, or factual about the data in front of us. Um, but one way we can think about big data is perhaps as, uh, as a data set, massive, even using massive, I'm a bit, um, a, a, a bit sheepish of using that, but thinking of it as data that is surface that was once obscure and distinct, I'm quoting Boyd and Crawford here, um, then aggregated and made easily accessible. And I think the question of accessibility is also something we should keep on the table uh, as we're talking about many data sets that are proprietary that are, that are uh, private property. So um, keep in mind, put, put on the shelf this question of access. So my not-so-subtle goal here is to recruit and evangelize, uh, to say that perhaps it's about time um, to, to push for a new metaphor for this thing that we're, we've been calling big data. Um, I'd like to suggest that perhaps we shift from a focus on scale, um, the implicit notion that big and small are the, the access that we're working with here to, um, at the very least, give equal airtime to dimension. But I would even argue to say uh, that there are, there are other ways in which we can um, come up with metaphors for this new aggregate of, of information um, that, that we should consider. I'm just choosing dimension as, as one place to push. Uh, I, I'd argue that there, the high dimensionality of big data requires us to be constantly um, assessing our tacit uh, theories, uh, the modeling that we're doing, um, that we should see data, big data, as an ongoing process rather than something that's just statically there. Um, and I'm going to unpack these as I go. Um, and that the notion of triangulation within, um, within ethnographic work is a, is a nice way of, of getting at this, um, this notion of process. And then lastly, that we're constantly thinking about big data as a fiction with consequences. What would it look like to not presume that it's somehow um, a snapshot of truth or reality, but rather um, a a temporary um, stab at what could be, uh, really a hypothesis, and to be critical of that. 
So the big picture here, the, the, the larger um, uh, request I'm making here, is that we think about um, investing ourselves in opening up questions rather than finding truths when we're looking at, this, um, at these things we call big data. Uh, and precisely to think about technology's meaning in everyday lives as in constant flux, um, that we're, we're constantly um, provoked to think about new questions we could ask rather than imagining big data opening up the lid and showing us what's really going on. Don't get me wrong, my heart, big data. Um, and in fact, I think for many uh, ethnographers, um, we're, we're pretty familiar with working with large data sets. There's, this is a new wave of thinking about the size of the data sets, but we're certainly um, incorporating um, a, a very familiar set of big data in most ethnographic work. For any field work I've ever done, I've always gone to census data. Um, I, I have to get some sort of touchstone for what are the fundamentals around socioeconomic status, um, population, <clears throat> Uh, school districts, some very basic information that's effectively aggregated big data. That's one argument I could make about census numbers. But increasingly, ethnographers rely on um, geolocation maps. This one is particularly relevant for me. If I'm thinking about the notion of um, proximity to uh, access to uh, digital media, to to the Internet, in some of my, my other projects, uh, this notion of measuring connectivity, how close am I to an urban center, um, is, a, is a very handy heuristic for thinking about the relationship between access um, and where one is remote. Now, I would turn on its head that something like this map, which is built on big data, um, also is an argument uh, for me to unpack. So if I look at you know, those dark spots like Greenland or the middle of Mongolia, the assumption is um, that someone in those locations uh, is, is uh, the furthest from an urban center, but it also makes a lot of presumptions about what connectivity means for somebody in a rural location. So if you're someone like me who studies rural communities and you ask them, do you feel like you're in a remote place, that you're disconnected, um, that their answer might not be, uh, yes, I feel completely remote because I'm far away from a city. I can assure you that they would have a very different answer. So in many ways, this map gives me a chance to think about what's presumed about the centrality of, of an urban location, for example. And I'm going to come back to, to, that, um, to that particular point. So what I'm asking for us to do is to unpack the ways of seeing uh, that are already embedded in the concept of big data. And in many ways, I'm making sure we're thinking about big data as a concept. Um, that it's uh, a snapshot, perhaps, of a scene. That's a, a metaphor for thinking about big data. And I, I just love Spencer Tun, uh, Tunick's. I don't know if you've seen any of his um, large-scale pieces before. Um, he's uh, an artist uh, who will do large um, nudes in public settings. So these are all nude bodies. Um, so you might think of these as data points um, as spread across uh, a map, uh, across a grid. So perhaps it's giving a snapshot of a scene. Um, it can capture a, a moment in time. This is the Socolo in Mexico City that Tunic uh, photographed. Again, assembling all of these bodies to produce um, this, this large-scale nude uh, portrait. Um, and also perhaps as a metaphor for modeling patterns. So we might be able to imagine where else you could place these bodies that you have to have a certain um, proximity to 
an, open, an open space uh, like the Sokolo, um, or that you need some place where you can assemble uh, a large enough number of people willing to participate in a, a mass project like this. But I'd argue at this point when we're talking about big data and its capacity for uh, serving as a snapshot or capturing a moment in space-time or serving as a model of patterns that we tend to overstep a bit and fetishize precisely what we see um, with those bits of information, with those data points. So it's, it's really a question, have we, and, and you know, I have my own answer here, are we at the point where we're fetishizing big data? Certainly Chris Anderson and, the, and, and, and his ilk in Wired Magazine make a case we don't need to theorize anymore, we've got plain truth right in front of us, but even beyond the popular discourse, I think there are places, if we think about mm, hiring priorities for many universities right now, that there's a rush to figure out um, how to capitalize on the promise of big data that perhaps is overlooking how much um, this is indeed a metaphor that, that needs to be unpacked. Uh, perhaps there's a bit of swinging big data going around. I'll just play this for a second or two. Okay, you get the picture. Uh, that perhaps right now we're in the midst of ignoring or hoping to reduce uh, the dimensionality of um, the, the social texture that's embedded in these data points that we call big data. So without, without trying, uh, we imagine if we amass enough, um, uh, enough data, that that data has something to, to say for itself, that it is raw, um, that, it, that it speaks a particular truth. We're perhaps also assuming that big data are something tangible um, rather than a concept metaphor. And I'm going to um, be very precise about the definition of concept metaphor um, as a way of framing what we're seeing rather than telling us what we're seeing. Um, that it's perhaps become all about numbers, numbers, numbers. For qualitative researchers, of course, this, this, um, this is an old, old uh, uh, battle that rubs us the wrong way. So I, I might sound as though I'm resisting a quantitative approach to, um, to the social. That's, that's, that's actually not my interest. But it is, I am interested in thinking about um, a, a desire to see dimensionality as reducible to, to the degree that we no longer have to think uh, qualitatively uh, about what we're working with. So what if we stop framing this as quantitative versus qualitative? Um, what if it's not about macro versus micro? And this is where I'm really, I'm struggling to figure out, well, what other language would a qualitative researcher use for herself and what she's doing? But what if um, perhaps we think about the value of a, a critical ethnographic significance? I'm using Tom Belstorff's um, language here in thinking about ethnographic significance. Um, matching it with statistical significance, not as, um, as complements that bring out specific truths, but rather as different interpretive vantage points, to see them both equally as heuristics. 
um, rather than one bringing a macro level of truth and another bringing a micro level of truth. Um, Something that would prompt us to keep digging, to keep upending questions rather than finding um, answers. And that reference to turtles all the way down, um, I'll give you points during Q&A if you can name uh, name the person who, who came up with that quote. I'll come back to that. So what if we assume that high dimensionality, lots of intersecting variation, is actually part of the package um, rather than press scale to eliminate that dimensionality? That is to say, rather than assume that the more aggregated a mass data we have, the more we can forget about that dimensionality, rather that we actually argue um, against such a reduction, uh, that, it's, that it would be impossible to make such a reduction. Um, again, to note, most of the folks I know who do uh, data analytics already um, presume that no matter what they're presenting, it's a fairly simplistic model. Um, they're, they're fairly uh, quick to say that there's nothing they're presenting that isn't um, just uh, an effort, uh, a question, a hypothesis. But there, there are certainly ways in which their work is taken as otherwise. What would it look like to think of big data as looking at the unexpected, um, looking for the particular and looking for exceptions, rather than looking for um, what's normative, looking for um, what's actually going on. So let me go back to this notion of concept metaphors, because I've, I've, I've found it really valuable. And if you haven't seen this work by Henrietta Moore, um, I wanted to point you to it. She has a critique in anthropology of the notion of the global. Um, And specifically, her concern is that in anthropology, again, a field that for the most part is seen um, as deeply concerned with the micro, um, and in some cases obsessed with with the particularity over the universal, Um, that in the case of anthropology, when there's been a lot of angst about how do you study the global if you're a qualitative researcher, she's pushed the field to say perhaps the problem here is that in thinking about the global, it's a, it, we now have an opportunity to think about how much we've fetishized the local, that we've presumed a certain stability, um, a certain truth about the micro. Um, that is to say that when we think about local, we end up reifying some sort of bounded system. Most of anthropology is over this in terms of thinking about location. We no longer go to a location and think that there's something um, complete or whole about it. But at the same time, when we talk about the global, and it seems so abstract, it in some ways presumes that there's something less abstract about um, the local conditions of, say, this room, that we could ever just know everything about this room because we're all in it, and I could interview each of you, and we could um, learn the details of this moment. So it's, it's, a, it's a, a wonderful way of reminding us that, um, that the micro and macro are particular kinds of concept metaphors. She uses this to unpack um, what she calls these pre-theoretical commitments to the notions of scale in anthropology, um, that in many ways anthropology has argued that what it has to offer is the small scale, um, the, the, the granular, the detailed. And in some ways she's asking us, uh, asking anthropologists to let go of um, feeling as though we have um, control over uh, some sort of knowledge at the, at the local, at the micro level, and rather to, to, to move to a different way of, of thinking about what it is we're doing toward that interpretive move that perhaps in a moment we're bounding something as, a fo- as opposed to finding something that's already bound and clear. Um, 
So where does that take us, uh, or where are there cases where anthropologists or ethnographers have perhaps overstepped um, the aggregation of the social? Uh, there's actually a really great case study of this. Where have anthropologists effectively done the same short, sort of fetishizing of the social that we see in some of the big um, in data analysis now, and particularly in social network analysis? Um, the answer to this is this really lovely case of the human relations area files. Is anybody in the room familiar with it? Awesome. It's actually over at Yale, so if you want to see the box, it's, it's actually a collection of materials. Um, this is one of the index cards uh, that's coded that's effectively uh, data points about, um, a, uh, in a nutshell, um, data points about uh, ethnographic materials collected over time. So this, this collection, it is literally, at one point was um, an index card database um, that's now been digitized, so most of this material is available. Uh, it was created in, third, in, in 1937 by George uh, Murdoch. He was one of the founding uh, parents of anthropology. Uh, but it came out of a really interesting interdisciplinary think tank that I think in some ways has some precedence to where a lot of conversations now are happening around being able to look at social data and um, think about the different dimensions of, of law, behavior, medicine to kind of capture um, the entire story of human behavior. Um, through, through different uh, social elements. He was specifically interested in finding a unified theory of, of individual and social behavior. This is at a moment, and again, to, to kind of offer a corrective about ethnographic work, it was at a moment when it was imagined if you looked at, um, at the social scale, in some ways it was a microcosm of the individual uh, or sorry, it was, it was the macro version of the individual and that you could just keep scaling up if, if individuals studied by psychologists um, are part of a social unit studied by anthropologists and sociologists, political scientists are studying you know, the macro, the larger political systems of the world. For, for most of the critiques of the 1980s onward in anthropology, the argument was that, no, in fact, the social is not just an aggregate of the individual, that when you put a bunch of individuals together, you, you get something far more complicated. Um, and I think this is an important piece to hold on to. There's a challenge against presuming some sort of unified theory of, of individual and social behavior here that I would argue in many ways maps on to the individual as micro and the social as macro. So again, taking scale too literally and perhaps taking it too far. Um, the collection also worked with probability studies or samples and studies that were based on coded data and correlational analyses. They took... Um, over 6,000 ethnographies, monographs, and papers, um, and coded uh, over 300 cultural groups. So at the t at right now, there are 750,000 pages and counting in this collection. By big data standards, this is not a huge set, but for anybody who studies tweets, it's comparable, right? It's, it's, a, it's a certain size set that's not too hard to imagine. This is a good case study of what it looks like to aggregate social data and where it can go awry uh, is the argument that I'm making in, in the paper that this talk is based on. Uh, the goal was effectively to create scale with ethnography. So for example, um, in the database, in the HREF, there are 16 ethnographies on the NOAR, um, a sub-Saharan African group. Um, they're each filed one after another, so uh, for every ethnographic study, 
Um, the ones that came after it were filed afterwards to see how the group had changed over time. So there's an effort, a kind of longitudinal study or longitudinal view of the noir um, as a bounded cultural system. Um, and then each page of each ethnography, line by line, um, paragraph by paragraph, was coded uh, in a, towards a goal of being able to um, be able to analyze the bits, the specific cultural uh, habits and ways of being of the noir to see it as an exemplar, or as an illustration of particular kinds of human behavior. Uh, uh, the group that Murdoch started, they were they were really committed to this universalizing notion of human behavior, of social behavior, and they came up with 700 subject classifications, what they called the outline of cultural materials. Um, this was effectively his taxonomy for what do humans do. Now, th- this is a fairly, um, it's an interesting approach to social data. I mean, it's to imagine that you can scale up the, and compare, and much of this is the impulse of comparative ethnography, that you can compare one cultural group to another, and in doing that comparison, come up with a synthesis that gives you, um, in some ways, a crystallized version of what's the core human behavior that's being considered here. The key critiques of this approach um, and again, I, I keep it in mind as we think about what do we do now with big data that might be similar to what was being done in the 30s and 40s and actually up to today with HRF. The key critiques, um, one offered by Turnbull in particular, was that it was anthropology without humanity. This particular critique was um, uh, of, a, of a study by Keith Otterbein uh, who looked at the collection, looked at the data set. He's not doing ethnographic work. Looked at the data set on Um, what he termed capital punishment, uh, which was effectively how many human groups practice some form of an eye for an eye. Um, He used that case uh, and the prevalence of of some sort of social sanction against murder as as a rationale for um, capital punishment as a human way of dealing with um, with, crime, with murder as a crime. Now, the problem with this is that it was used in many cases to justify the legalization of capital punishment. Um, as you can imagine, there were many groups, uh, thankfully, who later were able to read the ethnographies about them, who were able to argue that in the, any sort of um, eye-for-an-eye approach to, uh, to murder was, in fact, not a cultural norm, that in, in many ways it was the interpretation of the ethnographer seeing that as um, expressed as a particular norm that was what was documented. So it was the ethnographer's um, interpretation of a particular uh, cultural act that was in play as opposed to cultural uh, capital punishment as, um, as a human element or a human uh, uh, practice that had some universal character to it. Um, another critique that was offered by Tobin in 1990 argued that it was uh, totalizing. As you can imagine, a category like marriage um, was, in most cases, uh, almost all cases, presumed to um, be, by definition, the linking of uh, one man and one woman, even though there was a preponderance of evidence of polyamory and uh, polygamy in many cultures, particularly first cousin cross-marriage, which meant you were, you were expected, you were bound um, by cultural expectation to marry your first cousin, usually on your father's side. So those sorts of practice were 
that were in the documentation, a fairly common practice, were evaluated as being a bit of an edge case. Um, and it was easy to see places where there was an imposition of cultural norms around definitions like marriage. Um, there were also, not surprisingly, links in this database to the use of, um, of the information for um, military purposes, um, which has continued today. So that was certainly one of the critiques. It's a separate issue whether we think about perhaps the, today the questions around big data um, and invasions of privacy um, or the overstepping, the overreaching of big data toward, um, towards surveillance is perhaps the parallel here. Um, there was also a concern that doing this sort of codification of um, social behavior was a bit Victorian, was a bit uh, towards the taxonomic uh, as opposed to something that would be more interpretive. Uh, Henrietta, Henrietta Moore uh, might argue that this reifies the local as something concrete, taking these uh, data points, these incidences of cultural practices that are, again, an interpretation of practice by ethnographers kind of ruling out that there is really um, an exchange of information that's happening in the ethnographic moment. I'm, I'm in a particular setting. I'm part of the reading of what's going on. That gets, that gets taken out of the picture. And the presumption is I'm capturing some local um, phenomenon as opposed to um, a way of interpreting um, a complex process, social process, that in that moment I'm really getting at what the noir were doing in 1942 as opposed to 1946. Uh, It presumes both a certain kind of stability to history um, and also an ahistorical approach to culture. So the key things that aggregated social data can't capture, I'd argue, are things like the context of the scene. Um, you can't quite capture the stories that are animating people's actions. For example, if you think back to Tunick's um, mass nude uh, um, portraiture, that you don't, get a, you don't get a chance to ask someone why they chose to participate in that action. You don't get a chance to ask the person who didn't show up why they didn't participate in that action. Um, you can't get at what falls out of the frame. Um, in other words. And you can't necessarily account for the social structure that shapes who shows up. So you can't necessarily, in that snapshot, assess, are there people at City Hall who let lapse the need for a license to do that, that particular act, for example. So attention to scale on its own um, freezes, freezes the action and flattens the social richness. Um, that the attention to how much I gather as opposed to how it is I've come to what I see um, loses uh, some of the most important material that we have to consider. If I think about ethnography as a response to that, um, and I think about the human relations area files as perhaps a, um, a missed opportunity to see the value of ethnography as a field science, um, in many ways a way of thinking about space and time, Um, uh, coming together, um, then it might give me a different approach. It might give me a chance to think about the value of dimension as opposed to the value of scale. So if I think about high dimension um, in the, what I would argue are the large scale uh, data sets that go with ethnography, um, I would see the value of um, the, the typical tricks of the trade, 
And here I'm clearly, um, I'm biased. I tend to think this toolkit is incredibly handy for getting at dimension. Uh, participant observation, one of the key methodologies, is precisely to, to place um, the interpretivist in the mix so that they're not um, in some way uh, adopting or um, becoming like the people they're working with, but rather in a position to experience something that will perhaps generate a question that just strictly um, looking at a secondary data set can't, um, can't generate. Uh, it might involve archival research to give some sense of history, what has changed, um, mostly, again, to ask the question um, about uh, the, the progress or the process that's in the mix um, when we're looking at social data. That field notes the sorts of materials that are in HREF are an opportunity to be able to see the interpretation I've wrought and to have others um, collaboratively look at what it is that I've written down. Um, and, and I would be the first to say anthropologists are awful at this. They rarely share their field notes. But it is a kind of um, material that can add dimension, that can be an opportunity for thinking about um, what it is that the, uh, the ethnographer, the, the scientist doing the interpretation brings to the field. Um, the in-depth interviews that come out of ethnographic work, again, are not a chance to get at what, uh, what's really going on. They are a chance to ask someone their understanding, their perspective of a situation. So for, for anyone who's practicing these methodologies, to be able to see interviewing as um, a methodology of exploration as opposed to nailing down facts. It's, it's really critical because often the assumption is I just talk to enough people and I'll find out what really happened. The goal is to talk to enough people to have that many different interpretations of what's possible. But that's the value of the in-depth interview. And then lastly, to think about the analysis of the texts that are found and created in the field. Those maps that I mentioned, um, the transcriptions of anything that you've come across, gossip meetings, there are so many bits of data that are there for the taking. Um, just as a fun example, and then I'll move on to my own research, if I think about uh, weddings as big data, um, and I'm going to use the example of a, a particularly queer wedding that happened in Kentucky in 2004, really the only time I've worn that much white. Um, the photo can tell us about who showed up. If I'm just looking at the data point, think Flickr. If I'm looking at Flickr and I see this photo come up, and I want to amass all the photos of weddings, well, it really depends on how I've tagged this, doesn't it? Did I tag it as a wedding? Did I tag it as a commitment ceremony? Did I tag it as a party? Um, if I'm just looking for weddings, this might fall out of the picture. Uh, but at the very least, if I look at this photo, it's going to tell me about who's, who's there, um, who's standing with me. Um, you might see my brother-in-law there, uh, John, uh, he's actually, his baby is due, like, today. So I have to find out if his baby, if our new niece or nephew is on, is, has arrived. Um, but ethnographies can actually help us piece together um, what we don't see in that wedding feta, uh, photo. So, for example, my brother-in-law is in one of Tunick's um, pieces that he did in uh, Cleveland. Um, if you pulled up that photo of, um, say, on Flickr, of, of Tunick's um, uh, uh, gallery of, of images, you wouldn't be able to. I, you wouldn't be able to link the presence of my brother-in-law there to my wedding in Kentucky, just uh, about two weeks apart in in time. Now, it really only matters to connect those two things. Um, if I'm asking a question about perhaps 
the participation in, um, in commitment ceremonies, fam- familial participation commitment ceremonies, for example. There are endless questions that might make use of the connection between um, John's present, presence in my wedding and his presence in the tunic, um, in the, in the tunic nude. But the issue is that if I'm only looking at data points, I can't get at those social connections. It doesn't give me an obvious answer to um, the question of, is John in both those photos? Um, It doesn't really get me at, why would I want to know? So the dimensionality of his presence in both those photos is lost on the data point of his presence in either of them. Uh, To me, one of the most valuable things that ethnography has to offer this conversation about big data is thinking about the value of triangulation, saturating the field. And I'd argue in many cases, um, the kind of trigonometry that that this implies um, is something that critical studies could, um, could use more of. It means selectively tracing and moving across different points of view. Um, it, it particularly calls for uh, reimagining margins in order to see what's been centered rather than presuming that the center is just there all along. This is the particular value of queer theory um, to, to, this, to these fields. If I'm thinking about big data as scale, I'm not necessarily presuming that point of view is something um, that I can take for granted. Uh, it might just be a matter of I'm looking for an aggregate, say, think a, think a thought cloud. I'm looking for the largest word in that cloud. But if I want to understand what word matters most to a different subset of folks other than the algorithm that's produced just the number of times that word has been entered or, or searched, I have to really think about triangulation as something I could accomplish um, in a data set uh, like something like social, work, uh, social network analysis. So to think about the value of these points of view, giving us a a picture um, of what's going on um, to produce a focal point, um, to imagine what's producing norms um, as part of what we need to be doing with big data analysis. Uh, The tough thing is I would say that this is really um, something of a blend of art and science, and perhaps that's more disturbing to some than others. Mathematicians don't seem to have a problem with that mix of art and science. Um, so I'm, I'm kind of struck by the number of folks who uh, are advocating uh, big data as a solution um, for a lot of, of uh, problems that don't seem willing to, to imagine that, um, that big data clean, cleaning is perhaps an art. Uh, when you're producing um, what matters in understanding a data set. So to be able to understand how points of view influence how you move in the world, um, to be able to understand where those uh, points of view shift and how that's going to change your understanding of a problem. That's really, to me, the value of being able to bring um, the, the, the saturation of a field site to the question of big data, and to try and reimagine what would that look like if I'm not just thinking scale, if I'm not just thinking can I add more numbers, but can I imagine how I'm finding particular angles within sets of numbers. One more time. There we go. So what about research questions that might call for new concept me- uh, metaphors? One question that I have that I've been working on um, and trying to reimagine a concept metaphor that doesn't think 
um, for, doesn't think about, uh, uh, about quantity, but rather thinks about dimensionality, is to think about the difference um, uh, of social and mobile media to um, young people, particularly the young people I've been working with for a number of years now, who identify as lesbian, gay, bi, trans, or questioning um, in the rural United States. Uh, what does it mean to have social and mobile media uh, in their lives? Well, I, I often uh, rely on, on Paul Durish and this particular piece by Bell and Durish in 2007 is a great way to remind me that space um, is, is not just organized physically, but that it's organized culturally. So for much of my work, I found many young people do not describe the rural in such stark, clear um, uh, points on a map, but rather really imagine um, their, uh, their localness as something that roams with them. So when they're driving out to Lexington or out to um, a larger city to go to uh, a church, for example, that they very much consider that their local church. And that becomes a, an important way of thinking about how uh, physical proximity to something may or may not define somebody's relationship to it culturally. That, but that's, that's still a production of a spatial relationship, right? Does that? Okay. So one thing to be driving around in a car, new, new technologies, new media, digital media, um, also produce uh, a re-encounter with the spatial. Um, they also produce this sense of connection, closeness, distance. Um, and I'll give you a particular concrete example in a second. So to, to their point, that technology can de- destabilize and transform social interactions, um, but that will only be part of the mix. Um, that we can't really know how the technology um, in and of itself is going to produce a particular relationship. Now I say that because if I think about big data, think about a tweet, think about, um, uh, about my friendship network on Facebook, if I take it too literally as a sort of formation, a spatial uh, representation of my closeness or my distance um, in social relationships, I might very well miss what kinds of relationships matter more or less because I'm presuming too much about um, the representation of a kind of physical proximity um, in, in those data points. Um, I also rely quite a bit on Paul DiMaggio and Esther Hargitay when I think about digital inequalities, and particularly this question of proximity. So questions like uh, equipment access, autonomy of use, really define um, young people's relationships to technologies. It defines their access in very literal ways, as much as whether a, lot, a laptop is present or, or absent. So very concrete example, every high school that I went to in rural Kentucky, every single one of them had broadband access at school. Not one of the young people I worked with ever went online on those computers to do anything but homework, Um, mostly because the folks I was working with at the time didn't know anything about um, using some sort of proxy spoof that would get them around uh, around any of the, the, um, the blocks that were on their computers. But more importantly, every one of those computers came with filtering software and key monitoring software so that every move that those students make, uh, made was tracked. So that was a far more important way of understanding their access to technology, their access to the Internet, than whether or not um, particular equipment was present or absent. In most of the places I was working, these are places where there's still 
um, a fairly limited number of um, computers in the home. So only about um, only about half of the the folks I worked with had a computer in the home, and of those, all of them were sharing a personal computer. Uh, this uh, it's all it also made quite a bit, a bit of difference to think about. Um, whether or not cell towers were going to uh, were going to change things for the young people I work with, this was taken in 2000 uh, or uh, sorry 2011 uh, or the snapshot of when uh, what kind of coverage was available to the folks I was working with. This hasn't changed in terms of broadband penetration, so there's still um, a real uh, lack of of access. If anybody's been in Western Kentucky or sorry Western Massachusetts, your service isn't that great either. So you you know that um, that these sorts of conditions for access make a significant difference. Um, if I'm looking for participation on social media, I just keep harping on Foursquare or Twitter or Facebook. Most of the young people I work with fall out of the picture. Um, and so if I'm trying to create some sort of aggregate sense of activity around a particular phenomenon, I have to account for the dimensionality of that. I have to be able to get at this level of specificity, this dimension of access, to make sense of who's not participating. Um, that's, just, that's one example of imagining why dimensionality matters. It's not the only reason, but it's a very concrete example of why big data sets, why big data um, necessarily have to be interrogated as an interpretation. They, they cannot frame um, who doesn't participate, and they certainly can't address why that participation isn't there in the first place. Um, I was particularly interested in trying to understand um, with the creation of, of the appification of a lot of access to the Internet through smartphones what difference it would make um, to, uh, to young people who had access to mobile phones to, um, to access uh, LGBT communities outside of their rural communities. And it turns out that in many ways, the, uh, the apps that are being produced for anyone um, who's participating or looking to participate in LGBT community formation or, or just um, hooking up, in most cases is redirected to, either literally redirected to a city, to an urban location, or at the very least, there is a reinscribing of the urban as the place to be. So if you're a young person growing up in a rural part of the United States, uh, the assumption is, with a couple of key exceptions here that I'll point out in a second, the assumption is that you really should get yourself to a city. That hasn't changed at all with the production of, um, with the production of apps uh, for smartphones. That was pretty much the reality for most of the web content um, that most of these young people were working with. And it made producing a sense of local queerness their priority when they went online. So most of what they were doing online was producing some sense of um, being here, being in this small town, does not mean that I can't be also queer. The exception is something like Grindr, um, different social applications, different apps that let you um, find someone uh, who's uh, you know, uh, visible to you by proximity. It's not about being in a particular town. You're not looking through a list of resources in a town. The biggest problem with Grindr was having a young person bring up, um, bring up Grindr and see that the closest person, the, the closest person who's also on Grindr is 78 miles away. It reproduces this sense of um, distance from queerness, distance from somebody like you, that in every case that a young person could easily say, well, 
I'm that far away from somebody, but they were sitting right next to the other gay kid in town, right? So their sense of isolation is in some ways a bit of a paradox because this application grinder reimposes a sense of isolation and distance, but it doesn't have a way of helping them reckon with the local gay community that's already there. In some ways, it says that community doesn't matter. Um, So to be thinking about the ways that there's an imagined audience that's produced uh, with these applications, that if I'm just thinking, again, if I'm a a researcher who's following who's on on these applications, I'm probably missing how they're um, being used or not used by others who don't see utility, don't see connection with them. So if I think about shifting, and I don't think dimensional data is that interesting of a, of a metaphor. So if somebody could come up with something catchier, because big data clearly, um, it's the catchiness of the title that's, that's keeping us hooked. But if I think about moving from big to dimensional data, it really qual- calls on us to center critical inquiry as opposed to a kind of, um, a kind of revelational use of information. Um, it requires us to think about perhaps uh, what social change is prompted um, by uses of different data. Um, And it calls on us perhaps to think about expanding the stories of the lived experience, of not accepting any single data point as the story is there, uh, which is a lot to ask of someone who's interested in strictly the data points. It argues for thinking about um, the power dynamics um, that are below the surface of those data points. It, it calls on us to be constantly asking, well, who, who isn't able to tweet? Um, who is it that might not be in the, using this particular app? Um, which is not a very comforting question if you're using um, big data to, to say who's showing up. It's really handy if you're trying to say what audience is available to, um, to an advertiser. But for the most part, it has a limited value beyond that. Uh, it calls for privileging participants' voices as opposed to the sorts of digital traces uh, that are left um, in the wake of, of big numbers. And then lastly, it really pushes us to think about a cultural context that, again, is absolutely not self-evident in the data points that we're looking at. Um, all of this is not to say get rid of Uh, an approach to big data, a scale approach to big data, but rather to argue what else can we be doing beyond thinking about um, scale? What else can we be doing to add depth and texture to the kind of material that we get, particularly from social media um, and an analysis of social media? Uh, Any data can be interpreted. Um, and, And so qualitative folks are certainly not the only ones doing interpretation. So in many ways, at the very least, we can be calling out um, the uses of big data that um, I would argue are an abuse of um, a presumption of uh, something self-evident about scale. At the end of the day, and this is where I'm evangelizing, I would love for us to be thinking about all these data points. So think about these as just plot points. Think about them as tweets or any other kind of big data representation you've ever seen. If this is data visualization, how do we move from this to this? To always imagine that embedded in all of those little data points are constant interactions, social interactions, that are happening on a different plane that is just not visible when we're looking at that, right? So what would it mean to shift to a concept metaphor 
that doesn't let us rest there, um, but always sees people um, in, in the mix as opposed to data points. So with that, I will stop there. Um, and I want to thank you for coming out on a Thursday on a very uh, long uh, and challenging week. I don't know about all of you, but I'm pretty um, emotionally exhausted from this week. So um, I absolutely welcome your critiques, your questions, your pushback, because um, I, I, will, I will make sure I thank you in the acknowledgments of this paper. So thank you. I'm going to leave it on that. Uh, open it up for questions, comments. Thanks a lot. This was really awesome, and I think you're um, uh, talking to a largely sympathetic audience. I know. Here. I'm sorry about that. <laughs> no, no, no. I think it's a great thing. Um, it's nice to know that there are other people outside of our little sector of the world who think in similar ways about yeah. similar problems. Yeah. Um, a couple of quick observations, comments, Please. and so forth. Uh, one was that I loved, uh, I thought the example you gave of travel as a kind of biased argument of connectivity mm-hmm. was something that was that really hit home with me. I'm from, you know, I grew up in a small town in New Hampshire, and I never felt um, unconnected. Uh, it wasn't until I moved to a more urban area that I felt differently connected than other people were. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of the idea of dimensionality as a metaphor, I found it to be really, I found myself feeling conflicted Mm -hmm. between two different kind of mathematical or uh, physics metaphors, one being dimensionality and the other being frames of reference. I thought you were going to say manifolds. Oh, no, 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 no. Um, Maybe that's another one. I haven't thought about that yet. um, I'm sorry, what was your second one? um, Frames of reference, like from physics, right? Um, Because that really... You know, there's a lot of stuff about, you know, obviously frames of the whole idea of frames of reference is that there is everything depends on your perspective and your angle and how you're looking at it. Um, But at the same time, frame of reference doesn't get to the idea that something can be deeper or more textured because it's always dependent on the frame. Right, right, right. Um, Which leads into the third point that I think would be interesting to talk about, although this is a larger question and challenge and maybe a productive one for social sciences, which is the idea of, of context mm-hmm. and whether the social scientist captures a context or constructs the context. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is something you know that they talk about a lot in actor network theory. Right. Um, but one of the ways that I found myself thinking of your argument was that... Um, Assembling together the tools of multidimensionality, the mixed methods, all of these different composite ways of approaching a thing, instead of giving you like a better camera to see the thing that you're trying to see that exists out there, you're, it actually gives the social scientists more materials and stronger materials and different materials out of which to construct the thing they're trying to study. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that that it might be too academic of a way to pitch it. I don't know who you're trying to pitch this to, and if you're trying to pitch it to the wired crowd, that no. isn't going to work. <laughs> yeah. um, I mean, for a variety of but reasons. Yeah. But that was one thing that um, I really honed in on, mm-hmm. was thinking about 
context and what are, are we capturing it? Are we studying it? Are we filling it out mm-hmm. or are we constructing it out of more things that are now available to mm-hmm. us? Just real quickly to respond to that, I think in some ways I, I want to make the case that it's, um, and I mean this in a Foucauldian way, that it's production. Mm-hmm. You know, to be able to see context uh, as um, rather than thinking capture versus construct, but produce, which may be a bit of a cheap way out. But if I think about capture, in some ways it's a little too static. Um, if I think about construct, it's a little too loosey-goosey for me. I'm a, bit, I'm a little bit more um, old school. But if I think about um, productive, if I think about transformative, whatever it is that I'm interacting with, because I think there, there, is, there is an is there, mm-hmm. um, no matter what, uh, in terms of um, what I'm able to offer as a social scientist, it is a, it is a transformative um, production of, of that moment of interaction. So I am thinking, you know, I am thinking in ACT too. And just a quick th- uh, thing there. I, yeah. I think we're in agreement there. I'm not in anything goes, and you can just kind of associate anything together. Um, constructionist as much of a we can actually build an argument that's stronger than another argument depending on what we build it out of and yeah, what we yeah, produce yeah. it out of. I like, yeah, I like, okay, thank you. But thanks. Yeah. Just building on that, it struck me um, it, with this comment and also thinking about your term, it's almost like, and I don't like this as well as dimensional data, but it strikes me that you're talking about intertextual data. And I say that because as a literary scholar, mm-hmm. um, what you're arguing for data reminds me of, you know, I've been working on uh, uh, revising something right now about the realist novel in the 19th century in U.S. print culture. And in yeah. a way, this argument reminds me a little bit of something I'm thinking about there, where you're saying, well, data is one text among many texts, just like the realist novel, for example, is mm-hmm. one text among many texts. And, and if we don't take it at face value, and this is something that scholars of the realist novel have argued is, you know, there's a debate about whether the realist novel in the 19th century in the United States was a, quote, failure because it wasn't able to reproduce mm-hmm. um, reality um, the way that it was claiming to. But if you step back and say, well, let's not take such claims at face value. Let's look at how the novel was engaging with changes in print culture and engaging with other kinds of texts, then we can look at the producers behind what was being framed in a new way. Mm-hmm. And it's almost like there's a parallel with the way you're talking about big data, that it's, 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 a, it's a new kind of frame, mm-hmm. just like the realist novel was a new kind of frame at a certain time. And there were people who were very deliberately claiming that this particular frame was the frame that was going to produce reality. And there were lots of reasons behind that that had to do with how they wanted to attract certain audiences, etc. But if you look behind the text, I think what you're getting at is, is, is intertextual from a literary perspective. So, I, yeah, I love that. That's, that's really wonderful. I, I'm, um, thank you for that, because I hadn't thought about how much. I'm, I'm really influenced by uh, a linguistic anthropologist. Actually, he gets claimed by a lot of folks, uh, Richard Bauman, who talks about intertextuality. Uh, in in um, in a kind of social linguistic context, uh, kind of thinking about text text in a, in a very rich way. So that's that's really helpful. Thank you. Yeah. Hi. Thank you. That was great. Um, I want to pick up on a point that you made kind of near the end, where you were talking about um, surface or, or beneath the surface power dynamics, and you yeah. mentioned it with regards to um, you know the 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 sort of subject of research, that you might miss power relationships. But I'm actually kind of curious about um, 
the politics of the fetishization of big data, mm -hmm. um, that there's actually power relationships and power dynamics with regards to who's theorizing about what communities and in what ways. And it seemed implied in a lot of what you were saying in evangelizing. And, you, and I, I, you know, I felt like I was just like sitting here and, and nodding in agreement with you and then being <laughs> like, and also, you know, there's a, a and, and so I, did, I just wonder if you could speak to that a little. So let me put it back on you and say, so how would you fill, that, fill in that blank for me? Uh, <laughs> who should I pick on? Yeah, uh, how would you, uh, who would you pick on? Um, I don't know. That's a tough question, but it does. It does seem like you know it's an it's an old debate that has been had about yeah. um, whether or not uh, uh, information is just out there in the world for us to identify and figure mm -hmm. out and explain, or whether um, we need to um, kind of let that information speak for itself in some sort of way. <laughs> I think what I, and I, I just put. On, I think what you're picking up on for me is that um, I've I am working with um, some computer scientists, some computational scientists right now. And it's been, it's, it's, been, um, it's been humbling for me to realize how much I've assumed, um, uh, I've assumed they're overreaching as opposed to their data kind of being picked up and, and held, held up by others to say, see, um, in many cases, the, at least the folks I'm working with are, are, are really um, reserved about what kinds of strong claims they will make. And I think what I'm looking for is something that would hold on to I still think this might be prioritizing my interests here, but hold on to uh, a quantitative, a, a scale approach that opens up the question. Say, let me get, make it concrete. Um, if I'm looking at, at, um, at um, certain kinds of data visualization of something that goes viral, I might be able to find, um, you know, tweet zero. I might be able to find the place before something goes viral. But if I'm just looking at that, I don't, I don't get any of the context. And I know folks on that particular question, I know folks who are really interested in um, what would it look like to use that as a, a, a point to, uh, at which a qualitative researcher could jump off and jump into the, um, the folks who have who've launched that tweet. Go meet them. Like I actually, I find it really fascinating the number of folks I will, the, the, the data folks who... Um, have never it's never occurred to them to actually email the 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 person who or you know to to even you know reply back to the person who started a particular tweet to ask them like what were you thinking um, so even that move like that gesture I think my my holding back on saying let's just ditch all of that together or is to say what could we do to use that as a um, as a springboard to actually move back and forth um, so that something about that doesn't necessarily think. I mean it as, as iterative back and forth as opposed to scale up and down. But I, I haven't quite gotten to the place where I'm um, maybe letting go of my own biases about the value of the, the jumping in. Um, but I, I mean, I think to your point, like I, you know, I've been trying to figure out what are maybe some safe people to, to pick at. Um, and I, I'm feeling a little vulnerable in this, in this fight. Uh, so yeah, but it's great. It's a very good point. Uh, first off, I really enjoyed the talk, and as someone who has uh, a humanities background, um, I, I, my undergrad is in film studies, but now sort of jumping into the world of digital humanities, I mm -hmm. feel very, very conflicted, and this is really helping me sort through that process. Mm, good. Um, so with that said, a couple things. Um, 
One, I, I totally agree with you that context is important, the data is shaped, it's constructed, it leaves certain things in and out, that it can't be seen as objective ever, that it's just, that, and we can't see it as some window into greater reality, but as a digital humanities scholar, um, I, I think there are some, I, I'm just interested to hear what you, you think about some of these arguments. Mm -hmm. So, uh, for instance, um, Lev Manovich in a, a recent talk on big cultural data, um, he talks about data visualization in a way um, in, where he positions theory as the thing that's inflexible and sort of totalizing, and data as something that allows you to get at the granular, as something that allows you to look more at context, whereas theory is the sort of thing that's very, very totalizing. He says, yeah. um, studying large, massive data sets challenges our existing theoretical concepts and assumptions, is one thing that he says. Mm -hmm. um, and then also, just in working with digital humanities scholars, I'm, I'm part of the digital humanities research group here, um, oftentimes, and I don't think that this is what you were arguing, but the, the actual process of working with data visualization is that big data doesn't replace interpretive frames um, in the sense that you know, digital humanities people some, uh, have sometimes said less hack, more yak. They actually <laughs> critique that, mm -hmm. um, that it's, when you're looking at a data visualization, it's not just speaking on its own, it's people, uh, some scholar needing to bring expertise to the table and bring in an interpretive frame to actually look at the data and interpret it, and their particular point of view will bear on the kind of argument that they can make. Mm -hmm. So um, I guess my question is a long way to um, go about it, but what's the place of exploration? Mm. through big data. Mm -hmm. How can big data be seen as a jumping off point for sort of surprise in research? Like, mm -hmm. it's, it's shaped, of course, by the person who, um, you know, creates the data visualization, but what if I, I'm looking at something, I'm like, wow, that surprises me. I didn't expect that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What's the place of that in, in, in your interpretive frame? That's a beautiful, I mean, I, let, me, let me start where you landed and go back. Because I think in many ways I'm, I'm after us thinking about the exploration. This is going to sound um, very like never-ending story of me. Um, and now I'm picturing David Bowie. But um, the, 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 what would it look like for us to uh, think about it as constant exploration? And, and, and an exploration that is very much an exchange so that when I see myself surprised by what I see, I ask myself and I ask others to ask me, why am I surprised? to lead to another set of questions. Like, I think that if we can... Now, this is... I mean, for the most part, it's like, okay, then we need to come up with another way of publishing. We need to come up with a lot of different ways to represent that knowledge production. Um, but I think in many ways that's, that's what I'm calling for. Because in some ways we're... Um, we've, for, for many generations now, kind of stuck with the static, um, here's what I see, now what do you think? And I wonder if what we could do is a bit more of the back and forth that you're describing in exploration. The, the, it is incredibly powerful, and I think digital humanities has been in, in, incredibly provocative in saying, ah, look at this. And I think what I'm looking for is more discussion, um, both about when we go, ah, what is that, uh, that we, we really question um, who's surprised, who's not, and what that means, uh, but then to be able to go back to those those representations and keep asking, keep interrogating how we how we got there. Now stepping back to your the, to the point before that, um, to to Lev's to Lev Manovich's argument, 
I, I'm, this is, this is going to sound so whiny, but I think in many places I see the humanities um, having missed the humanistic social sciences in what they could be doing. So I do think that theory is in, incredibly totalizing. When somebody tells me that they, um, if somebody describes their method as um, Marxism, I am incredibly nervous. But I'm just as nervous. <laughs> Good, I'm glad you got I mean, I'm just as nervous. And so within cultural studies, I'm really nervous with cultural studies um, effectively calling on itself as methodology. Um, but I think that is because I am pretty old-fashioned about methodology. Um, I'm just as nervous when I hear folks doing data analytics who will say my methodology is algorithms. Um, I, and, and my nervousness is not because I'm settled on what it should be. My nervousness is a certainty that doesn't seem to be in conversation with methodology as, as, um, as a, a way of knowing. Like, a, a, you know, methodology is a particular kind of rigor and what are you doing and what are the qualifications. And this is the place where I really am old-fashioned. I like a claim. I like to know what kind of evidence you use for that claim. I want to know what your assumptions are about that. That's argumentation. And if I use that as a point of reference, in many ways I feel like we can constantly be moving forward if I don't presume um, the evidence is somehow more truthy than somebody else's evidence, um, if I assume that a claim is constantly there to be, um, to be upended. So with Lev's argument, um, and I've, I've, I've known him for quite some time, I, feel, I absolutely feel like he's critiquing um, a humanities that tends to be in love with the abstraction of theory detached from the materiality of everyday life. Um, I, I really wish more folks would pay attention to the fields that have been looking at materiality because we kind of have a way of getting at materiality that might be maybe a little useful. So I feel like his appeal to data visualization um, and to software studies or other things as ways to get at the material that um, get us out of the abstraction of theory um, miss an opportunity to think about um, approaches that are, are generative, can generate theory, but not for theory's sake. Um, I, I mean, and I, I have to be, I feel like there are some folks within, oh, no, I won't say that. I, <laughs> no, I will say that. I will say that I feel like right now there's a bit of, um, there's a, I feel like there's, um, a rush on the money for big for 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 digital humanities, and that the money is being put out there. That if you will just do something that tells me how many times this word appears in Shakespearean sonnets, I will give you like this amount. Like that, I think is um, I'm waiting for that to be over, because um, I think it's leading to a lot of bad uh, research. I think it's leading to a lot of um, yeah. I, I'm I'm just I just think that that's a shame, and in many ways I feel like it's. Um, undermining the value of what you were describing earlier of being able to look at that texture um, as, as defensible knowledge. Like that's really, that interpretive move is incredibly valuable. And I think in some ways we're, we're jumping away from um, interpretation as valuable. And I'm not really, you know, I can guess why, but I think in many ways it's because of the number one. <laughs> There's just no way for me to look at it as anything other than a fetishizing of if I just have enough um, quantity. Uh, I've got something that's persuasive, and um, you know, I, you know, I'll stop there before I bury myself any deeper. But hopefully, that gets it at kind of. And I'm after. I think I, most of this is to argue I'm at exploration. So I'm going to think more about what you're saying about the iterativeness there, and see if I can emphasize that part. 
I'm so cranky today, so you'll have to forgive me. So just one other question. Oh, by the way, um, Bertrand Russell? Yes. Okay. Um, going back to Abe's point, and going back to my initial thing that you're speaking, I think, to a friendly audience, who do you envision yourself making this argument to? Actually, this has a very specific home. It's, um, it's hopefully, it will be in the, um, in the International Journal of Communication. We have, uh, I'm special, I'm, I'm editing a special collection with, or a special issue with Kate Crawford on mm-hmm. critiques of big data. So this is going to media and communication scholars. Um, my, my, actually, I'm sad that it's not going to anthropologists because I think anthropologists are also kind of getting on the bandwagon of, of um, you know, what to do with, with big data. So the audience is really um, uh, perhaps a bit of this choir, but also folks who are um, trying to think about big data as a, a part of its toolkit, probably within their department. And, and this may not interest you, but I know that MSR has some connections with this. Like, are you, to what extent are you envisioning with you and I know with Kate's work, her HBR article and everything else, making this argument for qualitative methods or for multi-dimensional or multi-frame of reference or et cetera, et cetera. Um, If not to the wires of the world, then to the people who are basing business decisions, policy decisions, political decisions, and so forth on this promise that I think you are compellingly showing to be limited. Thank you for that last compliment. Um, I think my, my, and I think this is true for Kate too, for Kate Crawford, that um, I, would, I would argue in many cases big data is incredibly useful for marketing. Um, for the most part, it can tell us what somebody bought and what they looked at, looked at before they bought it and um, who else they were talking with about buying that in very literal terms. So in some ways, I, I, I don't want to undermine the value of this for marketing and for advertising. I can bracket off that I actually think all of that. I mean, I th- we haven't had a really good interrogation takedown of how um, causal and presumptive uh, advertising is for a long time. So if you look at the sociology of advertising, in most cases we know advertising does one thing. It p- pushes people to buy things. It doesn't necessarily push them to buy a specific thing. We have no good evidence of that. But, but don't tell anybody because that's a lot of people's jobs. Um, so I think in some ways the folks I want to talk with are not people in, um, in marketing and advertising because in some ways I think this meets their needs. I'm very much interested in, in making sure that people in policy and in, um, in political realms who are thinking about the social implications of the of the data they're looking at are thinking very critically um, about, uh, about any strong claims about big data. In some ways, it's mostly to say, beware of any strong claims. Um, Google flu fail. You know, look at any case where we're really banking on, and I mean, to, and Kate's much, gone much further in making this case, looking at the ways in which we set ourselves up for relying on big data to tell us certain things. Um, both where that falls short, but also in what, in what ways do we have systems of accountability when it falls short. So if, if and I'll, you know, I'm not picking on Google particularly because any company, Microsoft, can be guilty of this, of this as well. If any company wants to say, look at what our numbers say, and those numbers 
um, turn out to not be right, but lead to investments, um, financial or otherwise, in a specific direction. And then there's no particular accountability for the direction um, that things go. If, if Google can say, you know, in an emergency situation, just because we put up a giant map that says where everybody is, we are not FEMA, we cannot be held responsible. We have to have a public social conversation about who it is we should hold accountable for that data. And if it gets outsourced to Google, then we have to be thinking about that too. So I think the, the goal is both to say, be wary of strong claims embedded in big data, also be thinking about accountability and systems of accountability and, and social responsibility in the uses of, of data, big or otherwise. Um, so it's both to bring this qualitative dimensional turn um, to the conversation. I, and I think this is where I'm like, I, I say qualitative, but I really do mean this iterative turn. Um, a kind of iterativeness to what we do with data, that could we just persuade the popular um, discourse or the, the greater public to be re- less certain uh, and to be more invested in questions? Like what would that look like? Um, I don't think we're really there. I mean, I think we're still really invested in finding the truth. And that feels so 1950s. Uh, thanks for the uh, the talk. Really, really interesting and thought provoking. So, to continue on that thought about uh, big data and kind of fallacy and things like that, um, it's interesting that it is this time period where there's all these all this new data, and it's kind of where that's leading it. But what's lagging it are maybe the the people who have come up with the research criteria or the criteria for the methodology to assess the validity of of that, and there's probably people working on it as we speak, but it's kind of an interesting thought that I hadn't um, until, until today, so it's kind of, I'm not sure, do you know of anyone who's in that kind of domain right now? There's a little bit of that work, um, I think University of Washington represents it well, of, of and particularly graduate students, who are, are um, I'm thinking of Sean Walker and a, and a particular group that he's connected to there, um, who are invested in being as transparent as possible about uh, cleaning data. I think one of the best things we can be doing right now um, for folks who are using, uh, doing data analytics um, would be to make sure that whatever, um, whatever uh, result or argument they make that within the conversation is how did you get to, um, to that data set. And that right now is not expected because many most folks, most casual observers, particularly data visualization, I think can, um, can obscure it even further. Most folks do not understand that all of the metadata that comes in with, say, tweets, it's inc- it is full of, uh, of stuff that has to be deleted before you could ever aggregate to say, oh, this is how many times I saw the word Arab Spring or the phrase Arab Spring. Um, you, have to, you have to get rid of all the times that there was a joke about Irish Spring and Arab Spring. I mean, there's a lot that has to go into cleaning up a data set so that it holds together. And there are a few scientists out there now who are committed to making sure that that's clear. The wonderful thing is that in that conversation that's mostly about getting rid of the noise um, in data, there's been a really wonderful resurgence of um, attentiveness to saying, wow, there's actually more noise here than signal. So what do I do with that? 
Um, I think that's, that's hopefully um, be going to become more of the conversation. But again, I think it's precisely those moments that give pause to anyone who's making strong claims. It's usually the places where they're, they're qualifying what they're saying, where they'll say, I had to throw out X number of, of tweets or X number of data points from a particular source because um, you know, the geocode put, put, you know, put the person, put that data point in the Indian Ocean when they say that they're um, somewhere in New York City. Like to be able to, to pull, to tease those out and to talk about the process of teasing those out, I think are the places where there's, there's some work going into um, to what you're describing. Uh, just a couple of observations. Um, um, certainly the struggle to create data uh, is an old one, mm -hmm. a very long one and a very hard-fought one. It comes from 18th century, uh, the rise of statistics, mm -hmm. use of uh, data sets to uh, predict human behavior, the development of... Uh, the insurance industry, yeah. all sorts of predictive industries on which very large uh, uh, economies are based and so on. So obviously there's a, a, a major place for it. Uh, that said, data as a, as a word is a privileged concept in some sense. Uh, yeah. We privilege data. Uh, somebody says, well, I have a data set and say, oh, wow, this is, <laughs> you yeah. have it. Uh, you actually have the, the, the numbers. Uh, yeah. And so it seems to me that there's not enough attention paid to what people mean by data in a given set of, uh, a, da a given data set. So there, there's a whole area there that I'm sure you're, you're, you're thinking about all the time. Uh, a third observation I make is it's a lot of fun uh, if you're a humanist and you start yeah. Thinking about data after years and years and years of interpretation and yeah. close reading, and you know, it feels <laughs> so with the text. solid. I know. <laughs> Suddenly, there's a kind of a freedom of mm. uh, working through uh, visualizations and things yeah. of that sort. And you have yeah. to say, you know, there, 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 there is something really rich about this, yeah. as long as you don't overdo it. Yeah. Uh, and that sort of brings me to the last question uh, or observation: is uh, you talked a little bit about uh, methodologies for integrating uh, uh, data into other types of analysis. And I'm wondering, was that your reference to uh, triangulation? Was that one of the, the methodologies you're thinking of? Uh, what are some other methodologies for integration? That's, uh, on your last, I mean, I am thinking very specifically uh, with triangulation, um, something that would, that would look like, uh, I, you know, I'll use, go back to the example of the viral uh, you know, something that goes viral, a tweet that just seems to start someplace and then explode, that, that perhaps triangulation looks like contact the cluster of tweets. I mean, that, that, that could be part of what's going on. It could also be very much Manovich's move to say, um, what is it within the architecture of the software that is, um, that's uh, part of what Tarleton Galepsi would call the politics of algorithms, you know, that there's a production of what I can see and being able to fold that into the triangulation. But I, 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 I don't know. Like, I feel like in some ways it's what is it, what are the methodologies that we're going to work with? I, wanna, I did want to go back to one thing you said, though, about the data and its privileging, which is spot on. And I wonder what it would look like for all of us to start talking about our archives. I would love to get the data scientists talking not about their data points, but talking about their archives. Because in some ways, 
Um, in many ways, I would argue, these are they're archival as anything else that a humanist studies. So um, when I think, you know, when I think perhaps sometimes as, as, uh, as a humanist, uh, as a humanistic social scientist, as someone who even calls herself a social scientist, and I do, um, and, and, I, and sometimes I catch myself being surprised at my commitment to um, the quest for, for knowledge, even as I believe it is a production, that um, something that um, kind of keeps me humble is thinking about um, the archive as a place we... Uh, we all can we can spend some time. We can have a hard time getting to it, and we can usually make a very clear uh, map, if you will, uh, about what's what's gotten us there. What's maybe um, what visa issues you had to get there, like those kinds of um, those kind of um, uh, particularities about the methodology of sifting through an archive that I would think would connect humanists and data scientists in fundamental ways, because they're in the mix of, you know, sifting through material in the same way that any of us, and I'm going to call us now uh, to the choir here, sift through material. So we, we have that in common, and I, I, uh, I don't know, like maybe I can try and get more of them to say that, because we could call our stuff, this, uh, this to me is what I'm having a hard time with digital humanities, if I was going to put my finger on it, is that we're making the move to call our stuff data. And it saddens me a bit because I think it's not, um, it's not uh, necessarily uh, taking on the harder fight of challenging the privileging of, of truth with a capital T. Um, and, and I do imagine, and I feel like I interact with enough, um, with enough you know, computational scientists who I could see being quite critical, being critical scholars in the way I'm using Horkheimer. I mean, they, they really are, uh, at least the, the ones on their game, are so willing to go there. But they don't have the language. This isn't their training. So maybe another 10 years, probably many of the students in this room, you'll be producing that language. You're going to have this shared methodology. Um, but maybe one of the things we can do now is, is appeal to our shared um, toiling with the archive, because that's, that's pretty real. I mean, I, you know, when you're doing your stuff, and that, I think, to Lev's point about critiquing um, theorists, like if I meet somebody who hasn't had the strain of trying to get into a place that was closed by 4 p.m. and nobody will let them in, and you're not allowed to Xerox anything, you have to write everything with a pencil, it's like that person um, probably uh, has a very different experience of, of, uh, of research and work, which is pretty judgy of me, but I'm just kind of in that place right now. And I'll keep talking all night, so you have to give me the hook. I just have to let you know. Kind of a short question. There's a lot of money behind this quantitative side of big data. How would you argue against the you know, if someone said, well, okay, there are flaws in this, but it's good and it seems to be good enough and it's a lot faster and a lot cheaper now to do. How do you argue for this approach given that kind of argument? It is fast and cheap, isn't it? Um, and I think we deserve better, you know, and I think that's, I, you know, it's, it's a bit of a, it's a really romantic uh, response. And I think that's what's, um, you know, what hasn't been persuasive about ethnography, for example. Um, in fact, I'm always struck 
I, I'm, I'm pretty committed to ethnographic work because I just tend, not because of the methodology as much as I just find myself asking questions, and it should always be about the question that call for that methodology. I just haven't quite gotten myself to ask questions that aren't either historical or ethnographic. And it's just my predilection, um, but it's also, I really, I, I love, I love uh, this approach to understanding the world. And if I'm surrounded, if I'm, and sometimes I am, if I'm in, in a room of folks who really don't like talking to other people, odds are they probably aren't interested in ethnographic questions or they've worked those out of their system because they won't be able to, they won't be able to use the methodology they need to answer those kinds of questions. So um, many times folks, folks who don't like talking to people will say, couldn't we just do away with that part? It's so messy. Um, people are annoying. They don't show up. They talk on and on and on. And um, it's actually the messiness that I find the most fruitful um, for the kind of scholarship that interests me most. So I think the toughest thing is it is cheap and easy to find norms um, and to find what you are looking for in the first place. Um, but I don't think that's a very innovative way to, to, um, to um, get the most out of, the, out, of, out of our world. So, you know, I, I feel like I always fall back on these really romantic kind of trite things to say, but if it's cheap and easy, odds are um, it's, it's finding what's most readily in grasp. And um, if we've already got all that stuff, we need to start stretching. Uh, and stretching is hard. So I don't have a good argument for it other than um, the, we haven't gone there yet. So to, to my, I guess I'll be a little company man for a second. The, the thing about Microsoft Research is that for the most part, um, it's trying to pick up the mantle of a Bell Labs or a Xerox Park and say whatever is easy and within short reach, odds are we're, um, we're probably missing out on what a long-term investment might yield. I mean, that's just the hard crassness of it. It's like, what does it look like to sit and wait and um, to, to imagine um, that you're going to deeply invest in something that's not cheap and easy? Um, and particularly for a research institution, that's really the only way to produce, um, to produce something other than what we see now. Um, otherwise, we just keep repeating like, oh, I just found what I was looking for. I, my ethnographic joke for this very quickly is if you're someone who's interested um, in finding out, you know, does a town drink, a cheap and easy way to find that out is to walk into the local bar, and you will think that everybody in that town drinks. Um, cheap and easy. But it does not tell you how many people in that town drink. You, ha- you only have a few other ways you can do it, and they're, they're expensive and, um, but fun. This is just, as a final thought, sort of picking up on a word that I've noticed you've used a lot in the talk, and it's one of my favorite words, too, which is imagine. Ah. And um, it just makes me think about, I mean, so we've mentioned a couple times that you're speaking to a sympathetic audience here, but I just wonder, I mean, part of the challenge here is if you are speaking to people who are used to using big data and, and asking them to question, um, that's a word that could be a turnoff to certain audiences. So I just am interested in hearing you comment a little bit about um, how important is, I mean, I think what's, what I really like about your argument is that there's a very creative side to it and perhaps mm-hmm. a romantic side in, in sort of calling out the creative aspect to things that may seem like very hard, real frames mm-hmm. of, of our, that, that bring our world into view. 
Um, so I guess I wonder if you could just comment a little bit on, on your use of that word and, and how easy or difficult has it been to convince certain audiences um, with words like that and with a somewhat romantic perspective behind what you're arguing. That's really, that's really interesting because you know um, I used to use interrogate a lot. <laughs> And uh, as I mean, well, maybe you can't tell, but I, I, I certainly, in, closer to when I finished the research for Out in the Country, I was pretty angry by that point. Like, I had some very strong um, feelings about what needed to change uh, in terms of policy to address uh, young people's um, uh, conditions in, in, in the rural United States. And so a lot of times I talked about interrogation, critical interrogation, scrutinize, and I sounded as militant, queer as I could possibly. And I think I've um, moved, I, I maybe gravitated towards imagination um, and a certain kind of creativity uh, since being at MSR around mathematicians. <laughs> mathematicians and physicists and folks who model, because in many ways I think modeling is incredibly um, creative act. It's such a, a, a bit of a leap of faith. Um, and, and in that gesture of, of throwing something out and saying, and sometimes it's not in a what if. Um, sometimes it's very much like, it is this, therefore. You know. But if I t- the frame of a what if, um, I think, is what's led me um, to a, a fair, I'm surrounded by a very sympathetic audience about imagination because there's a desire to um, to uh, take that leap of faith uh, towards theorizing, towards theorems, um, even towards proofing. So um, it's funny. I think I have a harder time around uh, my, my, my old colleagues who don't necessarily want to talk in those terms because they're so devalued in the humanities. Um, in the humanities, we are supposed to be critical and interrogate um, and scrutinize, and that's what makes us serious and and it's really been a bit of a um, a bit of a relief to be someplace that, uh, unfortunately, I would say, is so privileged uh, to not have to um, be so serious all the time um, that they allow themselves to imagine. They allow themselves to, um, uh, you know, to to fancy something. And so there's a, a deep romanticism in some of the in some of the sciences that I'm around right now that. I think comes from a very privileged position of not being constantly questioned about the value of what they produce. If you produce a formula on a whiteboard, people just assume a certain kind of value in it. Um, But it is representation and symbolism. And they're the first to admit it. The problem is that, and and I just realized, and I'm speaking at MIT, so you absolutely get how much that's um, so privileged, so valued, so taken for granted, um, that the the folks who, um, who converse in that language um, may not be aware of the privilege uh, that they have. And that, I don't know what to do with um, going back to my colleagues who are so um, downtrodden by the imposition of having to make their stuff count um, when um, they're just as romantic as, as the mathematicians. So I don't think that gets at, your, at, your, at what you're asking or, or what you're saying, but. Um, but it's really helpful for me to hear how much I'm imagining because it's. I'd like to find the balance between um, uh, critical scrutiny that's also uh, infused with possibility. I mean, at the end of the day, what we're so produce possibilities. What could we be doing differently? And that's what I love about ethnographic work. It's like, 
whoa, here are some people who don't do things like I do. How might that be a, a model in very literal terms for other ways of being in the world? So, also a romantic answer, I just realized. Okay, I think uh, it's time to call it quits. Uh, thanks very much, Mary. It's uh, been a great uh, presentation. Thank you. Very thoughtful. Thank you. Thank you.